Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. I've been using Scrivener since 2014, and I never looked back. It's an amazing tool for writers in that it lets you build research in the same document that you're doing your work. You can put in images and PDFs. You can organize your work using the corkboard view. You can set goals. You can export it to multiple formats, including ebook and manuscript. There's really nothing Scrivener can't do in the writing universe, and I highly recommend it which is why I'm so pleased that they're a sponsor. If you'd like to check them out, you can follow the link from our website or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. If you're a writer and you haven't tried Scrivener, I highly recommend it. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Today's story is My Failed Career as a Novelist, written by Larry Patton and narrated by Meredith Lyons. Settle in and enjoy. My Failed Career as a Novelist, Chapter 1, Cheerleading for Semicolons. Punctuation led to my first literary agent. Our relationship began at a writing conference in California where I mingled with other wannabe authors. The weekend's agenda included a Q&A by a trio of literary agents on the trials and errors of getting published. One agent offhandedly mentioned semicolons were a red flag for her when reading manuscripts. She smiled while scanning the audience. I figured she was daring us to disagree. So I did. Semicolons, with their requests for a pause, then longing for the separate elements of a sentence to remain connected, seemed worth defending. Later, after receiving samples of my novel, she admitted that my punctuation advocacy caused her to pay more attention to me. Soon, we signed a contract, and she commenced seeking a home for Palindrome, the third novel I'd written. My first, never completed during my high school years, was entitled The DeGorgia Incident. That spy novel opened in foggy San Francisco, which I had visited, and climaxed in sunny Italy, which I still haven't visited. My second novel, Coromont's Shadow, was inspired by my maternal grandfather's death. Grandfather had been the murder part of a murder-suicide that roiled my family. Only two people read the entirety of my second efforts, my mom and my aunt. However, Cormont did lead to a plagiarism charge by a writing professor after he read the opening pages. More on that in Chapter 4. Following several quick rejections that my agent copied to me, I received nothing. As an unpublished novelist and a guy with a day job as a United Methodist minister, I politely waited. I wrote her notes and left phone messages no answer. Finally, when 1980 became 1981 and my politeness frayed thin, she contacted me. She had been sick. 
Her brief illness had apparently sagged into procrastination and then an avoidance of communication. We mutually decided to part ways. Years after my first agent, a friend and fellow writer quoted the always quotable Kurt Vonnegut Jr. to me. Here is a lesson in creative writing. First rule, don't use semicolons. They are transvestite hermaphrodites representing absolutely nothing. All they do is show you've been to college. Though guilty of attending college, I still don't regret cheerleading for semicolons. Chapter 2. Seven Novels and a Screenplay 1980, and my first agent was long ago. Back then, Joe Biden had just started his second term in the Senate. Over 40 years later, what should a 60-something failed novelist do? First, promise to be honest. I'm closer to 70 than 60. Second, also honesty. I thought it time to reflect on my literary journey's occasional successes and frequent failures. Not counting my incomplete high school spy caper with its killings of Cold War conspirators in Italy, I have written seven novels. Each had a shitty first draft, then more drafts, received feedback from readers who weren't family and often hardly knew me, and all were submitted to agents or publishing houses. One of those agents, a publishing insider, surprised me with his praise. Three more literary agents would ask to represent me. My first and last screenplay won an award. There was also the plagiarism accusations. I can't ignore the mostly true tales of the lucky authors, whom I love and hate, that motivated me to keep seeking publication. Chapter 3. Lucky Writers I Hate Stephen King said that all writers need to be readers. Never disagree with Uncle Stevie. I read for pleasure. I also read to discern the skills of the story's creator. In my day job as a pastor, reading was central. Sermons loomed every Sunday. My bookshelves contained serious tomes about theology and biblical commentary, but those same shelves harbored Annie Dillard and John Muir, Sufi tales from the Islamic tradition, and ruminations about science from the likes of Lewis Thomas and Atul Gawande. I was an early purchaser of Robert Fulgham's wildly popular All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. His book arrived in 1986, becoming a fixture on the bestseller lists for months. It sold over 7 million copies. Chock full of wisdom and sly humor, I used his stories and sermons. I also discovered Hal Fulgham, then a Seattle-based minister, who probably also had religious-oriented books bending his shelves, got published. In a church newsletter, he penned the life-affirming list of kindergarten lessons. His church members loved them. Some clipped the column from the newsletter for their refrigerators and bulletin boards. Others mailed copies to friends. One of those clippings slipped inside a literary agent's mailbox. She hunted down Fulgham and asked if he had other writings. Sure do, I'm sure he said. I raced through Gene Owl's The Clan of the Cave Bear soon after it was published in 1980. I still recall passages from her inspired imagining of the Neanderthal Age. Years after being a fan of her first book, I stumbled onto an account of how Owl got her literary agent. 
Like all writers, she sent K-Bear to multiple agents. One tucked Owl's submission into her briefcase with several other manuscripts to read over the weekend. The agent dropped the passel of writerly dreams onto her home desk and, as I envisioned it, poured a glass of wine, had Chinese takeout with her husband, and soon headed for bed. She would attack the stack tomorrow. Her husband couldn't sleep. He wandered the house, tiptoed into his wife's office, and decided to use one of her manuscripts for a sleep aid. Instead, he read The Clan of the Cave Bear all night long. The next day, he told his wife she must, must, represent Owl's debut novel. Earlier, I promised to be honest, and I'm not sure this tale is true. I recently searched for confirmation of how Miss Owl got her agent without finding anything about a sleep-deprived husband. Was I confused about another writer and another agent's home-roaming spouse? Was it my own silly fiction I'd come to believe? After all, if you keep telling a lie, it can feel like a fact. Ask any politician. Regardless, some writers get lucky. Apologies to Jean Owl and her agent, Jean Nagger, if my oft-told saga is complete fabrication. At a 1986 conference with clergy colleagues, I met Alice Walker of the Color Purple fame, one of the guest speakers at the Earl Lectures. Walker had a meet-and-greet session after her presentation. I came with a question for her. How many times did you get rejected before being published? I politely asked. Please note how my query did not compliment her extraordinary storytelling skills or ask specifics about the color purple. Never, she replied. Ms. Walker probably got a few obscure rejections over her writing years, but I'm confident she was correct about her novels. First, she is a gifted writer. Second, she graduated from Sarah Lawrence, a great college for artists. Third, mentors from Sarah Lawrence and elsewhere likely steered her to the right editors and publications. I suddenly wished I had gone to Sarah Lawrence, even if it was exclusively a college for women when Walker attended. I have shared my Fulgham, Owl, and Walker stories with fellow writers at critique groups. Luck does happen. However, no presence or absence of luck matters if you don't risk writing your manuscript and then sending it out. Be jealous of all real or imagined lucky authors, but keep working. One of my college assignments inspired a professor to request an appointment with me. Seconds after settling my derriere into a chair, he accused me of cheating. This was in the 1970s, long before search engines or plagiarism apps. Apparently doubting my paper's style and substance, he prowled the library to fact-check its sentences against the likely sources of my academic thievery. He found nothing, which didn't surprise me since there was nothing to find. Nonetheless, he believed I had schemed to pilfer a better grade. I think the paper got a B plus, or maybe a C plus, given my wayward memory and the depths of that professor's frustration. Toward the end of earning my graduate degree for ministry at Claremont School of Theology, I heard about a writing class at nearby Pitzer College. Dr. George Leonard was that semester's writer-in-residence. One of the creators of the Woodstock-era group, Shanana Leonard, had also published novels. Since my seminary had a formal relationship with Pitzer, students could enroll in certain classes at other campuses, I contacted Leonard to confirm my attendance. I told him I was writing a novel. He discouraged me from continuing until the class started. 
Leonard taught what he described as the Hemingway method. Keep writing until you finish the shitty first draft. No one but you will ever see the initial draft with its misspelled words, awful grammar, poor punctuation, and characters that may be deleted or renamed in future drafts. Whether insisting to be called Dr. Leonard or referencing his writing more often than other writers, he could be a jerk. But I learned from him. Late in the semester, he read samples of his students' work in progress. Entitled, Coromont's Shadow, mine was well into its second draft. I had followed Leonard's rules, completing a shitty initial draft in about seven weeks. I briefly set it aside, also his suggestion, and then worked on it again. My opening revised chapters represented the final exam. Dr. Shanana cornered me when the next class ended. Who wrote your book? Leonard asked. Was it really you? Plagiarism again. A pat on the back while being kneed in the literary groin. Unlike my college professor, Pitzer's guest professor believed me. The novel was my idea, my words, my not-so-shitty second draft. Leonard told me he was certain I would soon publish a novel. The jerk was wrong. Chapter 5. Award Winner Near the end of the 20th century, I headed for the Pacific Northwest Writers' Conference. I planned to pitch my finished novel, Ordinary Time, to as many agents as the schedule allowed. There was a second goal. The Seattle-based event offered contests for writers. Among the categories was screenplay. I had a screenplay ready for lights, camera, and hopefully some action. The conference's participants included film producers open to elevator speeches. In the time it took to raise a couple of floors in the building, could a writer woo a movie mogul with an idea? I sat with several nervous, naive screenwriters around a table. We took turns on the elevator to describe our cinematic masterpieces. As a pastor preaching every Sunday, I had an advantage. Whether or not my script had merit, I could pitch an idea with clarity and enthusiasm. Amen. While the producers didn't throw money at anyone, they were intrigued by Benchmark, the film I teased them with before the make-believe elevator doors opened. I got their card for a follow-up. Not everyone at the table did. Before departing, I said to the producers, Congratulations! About what? One asked. Your movie earlier this year, it was number two at the box office. Good for you. Prior to the conference, I did my due diligence on the book or movie insiders I might meet. Released in April, The Substitute, starring Tom Berenger, earned enough box office bucks to hit number two on the week's charts. I wanted them to know I did my homework. I wanted them to maybe, possibly, remember me. Then it got better. On the 1996 Pacific Northwest Writers Conference's last evening, Benchmark won Best Screenplay. Whoa. Or should I say, whoa, hit the cutting room floor. My decorated screenplay came with an asterisk. When the victors were announced, the conference leadership hesitated at screenplay. Apparently, only a handful of scripts were submitted for 1996's consideration. They'd mulled over dropping the category, but decided to declare every screenwriter a winner. It was the proverbial kissing your sister. Or, like little leaguers receiving identical participation trophies. Did the judges think my script was any good? Did I win or merely not lose? Soon after the conference, I mailed my award-winning screenplay to the producers of The Substitute. Other Hollywood producers and film agents were sent copies. 
I never got a nibble from anyone. Hey, Tom Berenger would have been perfect for my main character. Chapter 6. Harper Lee and Me. I kept writing and revising novels, kept sending out queries, kept getting rejections. For a while, I posted the sorry your material is not for us replies on my home office walls. Being surrounded by rejections while preparing for an upcoming sermon felt appropriate. Wasn't Jesus rejected? And look what happened to him. My queries then were for a novel with a minister as the protagonist. Write what you know, the experts declared. Planned as a series of mystery novels, my ordained hero would delve into hot-button issues like abortion and gay rights. When sending my queries, I hyped it as a mainstream mystery and not Christian fiction. I emphasized that pastors are one of the rare professions with easy access to where people live, work, and die. An agent replied, indicating she wanted to represent me. Unlike my first agent, she didn't think of me as the semicolon guy. She had loved what I had sent and felt her contacts with publishers matched well with my novel. I joined the stable of writers represented by the venerable Macintosh and Otis Agency. One of their clients was To Kill a Mockingbird's author. It was Harper Lee and me. My agent started working her magic. Then the magic ended. My agent had left Macintosh and Otis and apparently also bid farewell to publishing. While never hearing from the woman once enthralled with my nouns and verbs, a new agent was handed the old agent's client list. She contacted me, promised to check with the various publishers currently looking or not looking at my novel. A few months later, my third agent wrote to say she had done all I could without success. She informed me that my writing was great and wished me well with future endeavors. In other words, she dropped me. The day job continued, preaching and teaching, visiting the sick and grieving, leading youth group mission projects, and the early morning hours I worked on novels. My fourth and final agent was a publishing newbie. I had continued sending queries, continued my homework to see where my work might complement an agent's or editor's interests. Just starting out, I figured she was collecting as many writers as possible for her agency. Like tossing pasta onto the kitchen wall, some of her writers would stick, but many would plop to the floor. I understood and respected her motives. Within a year, I was cold spaghetti on her kitchen tile. She'd tried. She'd probably also been irked with me. Her limited contacts in publishing, along with her personal interests, meant she was offering my novel to conservative Christian publishers. Sure, I had a minister for an amateur sleuth. However, my fictional hero's liberal views were an anathema to editors with so-called traditional Christian values. When I noticed where she was sending my novel, I cautioned about their likely negative reactions. To this day, I wonder if my fourth agent had read all of my book before touting it to predictably uninterested editors and publishers. As far as I know, she continues to represent authors and is doing well. Good for her. After our relationship ended, I straightened my undercooked pasta legs and limped onto the next writing endeavors. On most mornings before the sun waved hello, I stared at a computer's blank, seductive screen. Flannery O'Connor, a favorite writer, said she made sure to arrive at her typewriter every day in case something happened. Good advice. I had a blog with a weekly faith-based musings. My local paper frequently and freely printed my writing. I self-published two books with a collection of essays. I kept showing up.
Chapter 7. Do you have a minute to talk? There was a fifth agent, sort of. For a period of time, Barney Carpfinger was Jonathan Kellerman's agent. Kellerman's best-selling novels featured Axe Delaware, a psychologist consulting with the Los Angeles Police Department. The fictional Delaware was an amateur sleuth consulting on sex crimes, serial killers, and quite a few cases that included, using my faith-oriented language, social justice concerns. He often teamed up with a cynical, overweight cop who happened to be gay. When Kellerman's first books appeared in the 1980s, a gay cop snooping through the pages of a mainstream best-selling novel was unusual. I did my research. I read Kellerman's thrillers. His psychologist sleuth brought unique, outside-the-police-box insights into crime-solving plots. Like the minister in my novel, Kellerman's guy could visit off-limit places and people. I sent Kellerman's agent a query letter and sample chapters. Didn't hear a peep from Barney Carpfinger. Sometimes a writer gets a real rejection. Before the internet, it could be a terse, unsigned postcard. Nowadays, it's a terse email. Quite often, silence is the rejection. Writers send their beloved words to an agent or publisher. The novel becomes like a NASA satellite launched into space with a sudden glitch in the communication systems. Onward, the vessel travels while its earthbound handlers remain clueless about where it is. I crossed Barney Carpfinger's name off my list of possible agents. Until the phone rang. Do you have a minute to talk? He introduced himself. I immediately recognized his name. For the next 20 minutes, Barney Carpfinger talked with me about me. He had read everything I'd sent. How strange to hear a stranger quote my stuff. Early in the conversation, he bluntly stated he wasn't adding new clients, but wanted me to know he was impressed with my material. That was years ago. I, it was in between agents. It was when I was seeking a home for the one novel while working on the next. When Carpfinger called, the sun was up in New York, but still hadn't made an appearance on the West Coast. When the call had ended, it remained dark on my side of the country, but it was all so bright. Maybe he regularly phoned unknown writers yearning to find representation. Maybe I was his token charity case of the month, but call he did, enthusiastic and encouraging about my novel. Most novelists work one or more jobs to pay the bills. They craft stories as midnight approaches or in the gloaming before dawn. For the bulk of their efforts, writers are alone. While creating a boisterous fictional world with reliable or unreliable narrators with twisty or heartfelt endings, they wrestle words in isolation. A writer is little different from a solo hiker. In particular, the writer creating his novel has foolishly embarked on a long trail. Like a Pacific Crest Trail backpacker at the Mexican border, the novelist faces an immense distance with unpredictable obstacles. Canada to the north, or a last chapter seems forever away. Fear and doubt will be companions. Mistakes will be made. Aha moments will happen. One foot in front of the other. Another day of 1,000 words. The early drafts can be adventures with open vistas and cooling breezes. The later drafts seem a slog on a dusty path with trail markers that are randomly wrong about the miles you've walked or the miles left. Continuing my imagined trek, 
I picture a novelist on a frigid evening, huddled by a dying campfire. All the twigs and branches have been collected and burned. The flames sputter. The cold gets colder. The dark gets darker. A figure emerges from a copse of moonlit trees, a bundle of wood confidently resting on his shoulder. He deposits his gift of kindling by the feeble fire, gestures a quick thumbs up, and vanishes back into the forest. Barney Cartfinger made a simple, upbeat call. It was also a rejection. However, a New York agent's kindness fueled my fire for a long time. Chapter 8. Don't Forget the SASE As 2015's calendar welcomed December, I sent queries for my seventh novel, initially named Christmas Joe. It became the gravity of happiness after readers' feedback. Those stamped envelopes and emails quietly became my last attempts to impress an agent or a publisher. My last not-for-us replies trickled in during the spring of 2016. Whenever I'd mailed my first-ever query, don't forget the SASE, to an agent as a 20-something dreamer, there were two choices for publishing a novel. The first meant getting a traditional publisher interested in your work. Writers hunted for a literary agent who loved the book and had publishing contacts, or would send the manuscript over the transom or into the slush pile. Those insider phrases meant an aspiring novelist had sent her or his work directly to a publisher. On a future day, at an unknown time, a lowly assistant might read the first chapter. In the unlikely event the opening sentences wowed the assistant, the novel would rise on the literary food chain to a less lowly staffer. Whether in an agent's hands or escaping the slush pile, the goal was for a publisher to buy your work, develop a marketing plan, and sell the novel to readers eager for your best-selling, life-changing story. A vanity press was the other choice. Writers would pay a company to print the book. The bad news about vanity presses they might scam you. The less bad news, they print your 100 or 1,000 copies, but then what? Vanity presses have mostly gone the way of typewriters and video cassettes. The internet transformed everything about publishing. For irrational reasons, I haven't wanted to self-publish my novels. Hey, I'm an old-school guy who foolishly longs for a literary agent to love my novel. At a more rational level, self-publishing is demanding. The writer serves as PR hack, clever agent, and risk-taking, or risk aversion, business manager. Since I have self-published three nonfiction titles, other writers have asked for advice. I give the same response. Writing the book is the easy part. Getting readers to find and read your book requires your grunt work and credit cards. Chapter 9. Before I Said Yes to Jesus Throughout my four decades of ministry and a half dozen congregations, I carved out writing time with hopes of getting published. A now defunct national magazine paid me a hefty amount for advice about weddings. An obscure Presbyterian publication printed several short stories and sent enough money for a fling at Starbucks. Other places and editors from print to digital said yes to my submissions. Some paid, most didn't. My day job, like a novel, has gone through various drafts. As my ordained career entered its final chapters, I shifted from serving churches to bereavement support at a hospice. 
My work with dying, death, and grief led to a self-published book on hospice care in 2019. A companion for the hospice journey continues to sell a few books a month. Yes, I have been published, but not a novel. Other novelist thoughts have sustained me in the chilly nights of rejection all writers have. Flannery O'Connor, ill with lupus and dead before 40, claimed, I write because I don't know what I think until I read what I say. How did she know that about me? Frederick Buchner, who I once treated to dinner in a funky Berkeley cafe, wrote, Doubts are the ants in the paths of faith. They keep it awake and moving. Nominated for a Pulitzer and an ordained minister, Buchner was right about doubts in the ways of faith in God and faith in words. Let me not forget Alice Walker. I may joke and be envious of her lack of rejections, but how right she is. Deliver me from writers who say the way they live doesn't matter. I'm not sure a bad person can write a good book. If art doesn't make us better, then what on earth is it for? Failure is guaranteed with writing, with rare exceptions. There is a shitty first draft or a not-quite-there-tenth draft that will birth a polished collection of sentences worth reading. Becoming better because of my art is not guaranteed. Here, maybe Miss Walker and I have something in common. I like to think we both continue to try to be better. In the 1980s, why didn't a parishioner mail a snippet of my church newsletter musings across the country? Why didn't a literary agent's insomniac spouse grab my speed limit or the longest night while those novels beckoned on a cluttered desk in the 1990s? After my fourth or sixth novel was written and rejected, why couldn't I admit to being a fool for my efforts? Was I unlucky? Am I merely a lousy writer? Self-doubt is always cackling in the background. A troubled fellow with a Nobel Prize in literature, Papa Hemingway stated, there is no rule on how to write. Sometimes it comes easily and perfectly. Sometimes it's like drilling rock and then blasting it out with charges. Now retired from my day job, I am blessed with a monthly pension check from the United Methodist Church. Paid not to work. And yet I wonder if there is work left to do. When ordained in 1977 to marry, bury, and baptize, as the old-timers gleefully described the ministry to me, I had already written a novel rejected by several of New York's best publishing houses. Before saying yes to Jesus, I was getting a no from editors. Will I continue to write? Am I still breathing? Starting and finishing a novel can be drilling a rock and then blasting it out with charges day after lonely day. It is a thousand and more dark mornings staring at a screen that stares at you. It is like standing at the Mexican border and risking a first stride toward Canada that will be followed by countless dreary, stumbling, and occasionally glorious steps. One of the crucial questions a writer must ask is, who is my audience? I know what my answer is after all of the rejections received over the years. I write for me. Later, I might revise that answer. I do have an idea for an eighth novel, and I am still breathing. You've just listened to My Failed Career as a Novelist, written by Larry Patton 
And we have Larry on the show today to talk about this piece and his writing journey in general. Welcome to the show, Larry. Thank you. Good to be here. So happy to have you on. And of course, we always have our wonderful co-host, Melissa Collings. Welcome, Melissa. Hello, hello. Great. Well, we're going to jump right into the meat of this thing. So Larry, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, kind of maybe your path to writing and anything else you want us to know? Okay. Yeah. Again, my name is Larry Patton and uh, just a quick background, born and raised in California and uh, much of my life uh, has been here, uh, but I uh, partly because of uh, eventually becoming a United Methodist pastor, uh, I mm. also ended up living in places like Oregon and Wisconsin, although the Wisconsin part is because of my wife. Uh, she wanted to get her uh, PhD and become a professor, and so I uh, oh. uh, moved out to Wisconsin with her while she was doing that. She's originally from Wisconsin. Madison. Uh, the Madison area, yeah. She, yeah. Was, she was going to school in Madison. Uh, the, the initial place where we lived was in a little town called Argyle, and she had a two-hour round trip to get Oof. to classes, etc. Argyle was wow. a place with a teeming population of 700. Uh, <laughs> teeming. Yeah, two teeming. bars, two churches, and there you go. Uh, Did they all wear sweaters? Uh, constantly, even, constantly. even <laughs> yes. and they spoke and they spoke funny. Uh, right. no, they said I did. Uh, so, um, and you know, it's interesting to think, I mean, I, I was aware you were going to ask some variation of this, but, uh, in terms of when, you know, my, my interest in writing began, I really mm -hmm. have no idea, you know, when I push it back, one of the things I mentioned, uh, in the, in the piece that I wrote for you, uh, is about a novel that I, it was never fully finished, but I had it all plotted out and wrote most of it. But that was probably my sophomore year in high school. And even mm. before that, I can remember doing some things. It was one of the things that I enjoyed doing, um, yep. although it wasn't for many years until I discovered uh, there, there's something actually better than a first draft. Um, uh, but I, I truly can't remember. There's no, no influences, no teachers I can think of that type of thing. Yeah. Okay. But it's always been right. a part of what I've enjoyed doing. I like that. Well, that's interesting because a lot of friends of mine and writers that we've interviewed on the show or in the background materials do reference, you know, childhood storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that that's kind of a part of a lot of our past is that we really enjoy it as a kid. And I wonder if that's through the reading process. I'm not really sure. But then you discover the idea of storytelling and you write your first novel. So I know I, I started to draft a novel when I was 14. Never got anywhere with it, but yeah. I had some great ideas, yeah. you know, which is what everybody <laughs> has when you're 14. <laughs> <laughs> Their best ideas. And yeah. that triggers a memory, you know, in the, in the sense that uh, one of the things my mom did, uh, by, gosh, starting probably in elementary school, but she would always volunteer at the school and she would very intentionally volunteer in the library and she would bring <laughs> home books constantly and you know kind of the sense of try that try that try this and you know some went back very quickly um yeah. i can vividly remember crying uh over a particular book uh that uh, when the ending came along and and uh uh, there was a period of time where I had uh, a scorecard of how many books I had read uh, up on my uh, bedroom door. Wow. So, the, you know, without a doubt, even though I can't kind of think of, you know, any specific sequence of events or, or, or a particular person, I was reading very young and enjoying stories and, and loving novels and 
Um, and I think that certainly, you know, fed into the interest in, in doing things that, you know, are, are about creating something that is not there and yeah. until you start putting it on a piece of paper. Or in my case, I mean, I spent most, uh, uh, one of the great gifts my parents gave me was this beat up little uh, uh, portable German typewriter for college. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and I pounded away on that quite a bit. I oh, love that's it. Great. But I do need to know. So, what was the book? Your first book that made you cry? Uh, Albert Payson Turhune, "Lad, a Dog," huh. um, which probably explains also why I enjoy dogs so much. But boy, by the time you got <laughs> to the end, and I mean, you knew Lad was going to die. Oh, um, you know, you did. But but he did, and when he did, and it was all over with. I read that book probably fifteen times, and oh. I, I bet I cried every time. Oh um, man, torturing yourself. Yeah. I think this is a good question. We need to put on our list of questions. You know, what's the first book that ever made you cry? You know, I think oh, that could be yeah. kind of fun for, that, for yeah. people to know. For me, it was Old Yeller. Oh yeah, Old Yeller. Yeah, yeah. But I don't even know who the author is for that. We shouldn't talk show. about this too much. I'll start crying. You know. I know you're both <laughs> dying dogs. Let's let's move yeah. along here. Yeah. Um, uh. I couldn't tell you what mine was. I I don't know. I think I I really enjoyed like socks for supper. <laughs> Wait a minute, socks for supper is that the one where the the poorer poorer family gives like um gets stuff from another yeah, they family? want they want cheese i actually found it yes! recently and yeah. they want cheese they're hungry and it's a husband and wife and the wife sews pairs of socks to sell in the city or wherever she's selling them to, her, like to, to a farmer to a, to a farmer for cheese yeah for cheese and she's taking it from the guy's sweater and from her partner's sweater <laughs> yes from her partner's sweater so he ends up being shirtless but they eat a lot of cheese and finally the person who was looking for the, all of this, oh, we're, we're really going off on a segue, but the, I, I mean, this, but <laughs> it's okay. It, so, the sweater comes Melissa, back. how did you really feel about that? Right. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Here's the plot line. Okay, spoiler alert. <laughs> right, spoiler. Now, we'll stop there Socks so you supper. can go read it because it ends with this naked guy. So we'll see what happens. Right. It, just, <laughs> it just gets better. <laughs> yes. No, you anyway. should give the ending. Yeah, I should tell the ending. Well, I, the, the person who was getting the socks was actually dismantling the socks to create a sweater. So right. the guy gets his sweater back in the end. Right. She gives so. it to him for Christmas. Yeah. that's We have that. It's a really you know, old wow, book. It's like from the 70s it. or 60s. Well, yeah. because we've read it probably more, more recently than you have <clears throat> with our kids. I read it sometime recently, but it was like online. and Oh, um, okay. Because I couldn't find it. We don't have the book anymore. I don't know where it is. But anyway. Yes. <laughs> Reading and writing, Larry, has always been a part of your journey and your story, and which is is pretty much what this piece is about that yes. that we have here. So what prompted you to write this particular piece? What made you say, I need to tell my writing story? I think in some ways it was a time of transition, you know, when I was hitting a point where it was time to uh, retire. And I also knew I had some plans of some things I wanted to continue writing. But at the same time, I think that that end of a particular aspect of my life uh, caused a certain amount of reflection. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, what has been my journey up to this point? And uh, I'm, on the one hand, very proud of what I have written. But I think what feeds that also is there's a sense of regret. Uh, there were, you know, as I look back, it's like there were some missed opportunities 
and maybe I was not taking advantage or maybe there was no chance to have those opportunities anyway. Um, hmm. But I you wanted mean like to, to get your work published. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I, and, and one of my, I think one of my heart and head struggles always is it doesn't matter. My heart says if I get published, if I enjoy writing, I want to keep writing. And right. I, I've had some, you know, uh, various uh, things where I have gotten some wonderful feedback and I know that some of my writing has touched some folks, but there's that head part of me that, you know, really wanted to get, uh, some type of, a of a connection into the traditional, uh, yeah. writing world and, and get some things in particular, a novel published. I mean, I have had a, a you know, a number of things and, and mostly low key publications that have been published and, and I felt really good about some of the self-publishing I did, but that dream, uh, I mean, like I, you know, said, and like I wrote about, I mean, I was putting together a novel, uh, when I was in high school, I, I got my first rejection from a short story that I wrote, uh, during, uh, my high school times. And so even fairly young, I was kind of thinking there's gotta be some way, you know, to, yeah. uh, you know, to make that connection, but in the sense of what the big dream was of having you know, a novel or novels published that certainly hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Uh, I tell you, I completely understand. I completely get that. I am in, have been in the same place where you are. Your piece really spoke to me. And because that's been my, my dream, my goal mm -hmm. really, um, is to be traditionally published. And so to hear your story, I mean, it's very, depressing <laughs> but, <laughs> thank, but thank you so much <laughs> yeah, because you you when i mean you're on this roller coaster and i'm like in the middle of this and i'm like man just let the man get published you know it's just like <laughs> let him in there you were so close so many times yeah and i mean i hurt for you but but also it's inspiring because along the way you continued to reach for your goals Mm -hmm. And you weren't ashamed of reaching for your goals. You just kept going. And man, you've really, you've really gotten somewhere. And even though you haven't, and you may still yet, you know, achieve that <laughs> traditionally published, you haven't reached that. Right. It's still really, it's inspiring to read this piece as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to be honest in the sense that it, there were very intense moments of frustration uh that that i wanted to capture but at the same time i also wanted some element of levity uh yes mm -hmm. and you know the that uh and and i and i know my story uh at least for people who really are those kind of reader writers who truly do enjoy crafting you know some words yeah. and and what have you that it's a in some ways a fairly common story yeah uh, i i think i've maybe more than some beaten my head against the wall and, and uh, I think, you know, one of the regrets I have is I have participated in some fairly high powered, you know, writers conferences, not a lot, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but the ones I did, I, I thought, you know, part of what may happen during this time is I could find someone who would become a mentor mm -hmm. and that never happened either. And, and again, that's one of those things where you can go either direction with it. You can say well, I guess I should have tried harder or done something differently or been more aggressive. I mean, in many ways, I'm, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
but as much as I can, you know, uh, you know, get down on myself about that, I'm, I'm also, I mean, I remember one conference where there were these three wonderful writers who two of the three I truly admired. And I figured we were going to be spending a lot of time together. They were the leaders of this workshop and it was people all across the country. And one of the things they said early on is, well, we're here to also work on some of our stuff. And they were sort of inaccessible for yeah. large stretches of time. And, really? and, it's, and it was kind of one of those things, well, uh, I paid my bucks. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, that, that sort of selfish ego you know, yeah. thing there. Um, and, you know, so as even though it was a very positive experience, the thought that maybe somebody would, you know, be uh, a, a person who would open a few doors didn't happen. And again, that's a pretty common story, I think. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right, though. But I think it's less common for people to have the agent experience that you did. Uh -huh. um, you know, it's really <laughs> difficult to secure an agent. Yes. Um, but you... You secured multiple agents at different yep. times in your <laughs> yes. career. So that, I mean, you maybe haven't gotten the validation of what you set out to do, but then the one person, which I can't even remember his name right now, how embarrassing, but who called you, decided yes. Yes. that agent who said, I can't take you on, but man, yeah. I just had to call you and tell you that you're pretty great. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's huge. That's nice. oh, it, it was, and as, as I indicated, you know, in the essay. I mean, that really kept me going for a long time. And I truly, in fact, he's still alive. And I plan when this is, story is published, I'm going to send him a link. To uh -huh. I haven't had any communication with him since that long, long ago phone call. Yeah. Um, but that really was one of those things where it's like, okay, if there's one person out there that is interested and felt like there was some real value, enough so to, you know, go out of his way to give me a call, yeah. there's got to be somebody else. Um, right. And then the thing we always talked about in critique groups and writers groups and that type of thing is, you know, you're going to get all of those rejections, but there's somebody out there. I mean, and to a certain extent, you guys represent part of that for me. I mean, I mm -hmm. I sent this story out to, you know, probably eight or nine places, and mm -hmm. it's finding the right person at the right moment. Uh, the Definitely. Right who reads yep. it and says, well, let's take it to the next step and the next step. And, uh, yep. you know, so the rejections come, but I do have some delightful moments that made me feel, you know, validated. Yeah. Um, but they didn't ever take it to that to that, to that next yeah. place, you know, yeah. and that's... Well, I think, I think it'll happen. If you're keeping at it, it sounds like you're working on an eighth novel. I, yeah, I have a lot of ideas. I, it, it makes me nervous. It does. I mean, part of it is because I know what it takes to go from that, uh, the first words on, on the page uh, and, until you have all the drafts done, et cetera, et cetera, and yeah. are willing to, to share it. And I, I like to think that I have enough energy and have her to do it, but it is a lot of hard work and I, yeah. I love it when I read a good novel and sometimes mm. I think, cause I'm, there's a part of me that's always kind of analyzing things at least a little bit, <laughs> but there are those times where when you are reading a novel and you think, gosh, this is so easy, you know, it's just the story that unfolds, yeah. but then I'm, you know, very much aware that, you know, it, it was a huge effort. Oh yeah, uh, right, you know, right. to get to this point. I mean, one of my one of my favorite novels, a novel that still, when I think about it, it just I just am deeply touched by it. Uh, but was uh, Carl Marlantis's um, uh, Manhattan? Uh, excuse me, Matterhorn. 
which is a novel mm. about Vietnam, and he worked on it for 30 years. Wow. Um, and the original draft was somewhere in the range of uh, 1,000 or 2,000 pages. And oh, uh, he, had, he had a really good editor with him that, that was, you know, uh, believed very much in what he was doing and hung in with him, and it, it eventually was published uh, after all those years. You know, wow. and so I read that, and it's like, well, this is such easy reading. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, right. yes, yes, it is extremely easy reading, but the price that was paid, you know, to get to that point uh, right. is, is huge. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing I love about this piece. It is a sympathetic piece for somebody who is writing and then the reader writer like you said because you I mean you can't be a writer if you're not a reader too so um for the writers you really you can relate but for the readers they don't know this sometimes mm -hmm. the readers don't realize that mm -hmm. like you're saying all those pages came at a high high price yeah and uh, it took a long time to get there it was hard work on the part of the author agent editor you know, goes through so many hands. I mean, there's yes. I mean, so many other hands than just the ones we've mentioned. So it's really right. neat. Um, but one of my favorite paragraphs in your, your pieces starts with most novelists toward the end uh, work one or more jobs to pay the bills. They craft stories at midnight approaches or in the gleaming before dawn as midnight approaches. For the bulk of their efforts, writers are alone. While creating a boisterous fictional world with reliable and unreliable narrators with twisty and heartfelt endings, they wrestle words in isolation. And I think that is just perfect. It just captures that because so many writers feel alone. Mm -hmm. um, and you are alone in it and you get that rejection alone. But I have found that um, the writer's group, and you mentioned, it made me think of this, you mentioned, you know, the writer's groups. That helps. You know, mm -hmm. having somebody, regardless of whether you're a writer or what, whatever you're doing and that part of something that I'm working on right now is helping people succeed and like the process mm -hmm. of succeeding. One of the things that I think is really important for being a success is surrounding yourself with people that are doing the same thing that you are. And you mentioned writers groups. Are you a part of one? Do you have one that you call home? No, not right now. I have been part of a lot of writers groups um, over the years. And there was one that was that I was very actively involved with, especially when I was the the novels that I was working on through uh, about five or six years ago, and that and writers groups are critical. And one of the things I have found in the various writers groups I've been part of is to stay alert to the people who are simultaneously willing to criticize you and to really give you honest and sometimes blunt feedback. Yeah, but they are also people that, and sometimes it's it's you know a, a variation of a between the lines way, but they also convey that they have a real respect for what you're trying to do. And I can think of a variety of folks over the years who, you know, when I went to that group, I was so looking forward to hearing what they said, and I I, I sometimes it was almost as if I was kind of lusting after <laughs> um, someone to, you know, to be appropriately critical, you know, in yeah, that critique. Yeah, sure. Because I don't need someone to tell me I'm a good writer. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's not I, doing you any favors, right? Right. And, and in a typical group that I've, at least that I've been a part of, there's always some folks there, they're just there because they do, you know, maybe they're, they enjoy writing a, you know, a personal journal or they, 
trying to put together a family history of some yeah. kind or they're dabbling a little bit with, with stories. And that's great. And I, I certainly listened carefully to whatever they said, but I always tried to really pay attention and, and to be open to those folks who you know, understood some of what the process meant. And, and if a character wasn't working, <laughs> it would tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's you know? good. And that's good. initially it's always hard to hear that, but it's like, right. you know, that's it's how you grow, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, one of the questions that I have, I, I always lean towards this question because I'm fascinated by the paths that people take to get to writing. So a lot of times, like you said in your piece, you know, people have other jobs and you were a minister. And so I wonder how does the writing and like the sermon preparation or even the presenting of it, did that impact the style of your writing or the way you write or how you think about writing or just totally separate um, worlds for you? They are mostly separate worlds. Uh, when I was preaching regularly, I was not a manuscript preacher. I did not write out anything right. beforehand. I oh, wow. did a lot of research. I did a lot of you know looking at things. I jotted down a lot of notes. But the whole goal was to arrive at a point where I felt like I, you know, knew what I was uh, I was going to try to say in the course of the uh, of the sermon. So how I approached writing, knowing okay, I have you know I write a first draft. And then there's going to be another draft and another draft, and I'll keep working on it and that type of thing. That was not the experience I, I had at all. I mean, I would I would do some editing. I mean, when I was when I did a certain amount of practicing, I would realize because uh, in white Protestant churches, you're only supposed to preach for 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so I was, you know, there was a part of me always conscientious about okay, I have so much time. Uh, but I would drop out stories that I might tell just because it either didn't fit or literally because of, of a time thing. Hmm. Um, but with the writing, it's for me, it's a different process. And the process being that, that I'm trying to be as careful as I can with the words I use, even when what I'm using might be very, you know, very much slang or vernacular or, or that type of thing, but that every word needs to be as intentional as possible. And one of the contrasts you know, with that is, I mean, I, I can literally remember many places when I was preaching where as I was looking at the various folks, you know, I, I might see the woman over there on the left side of the church in which I know earlier that week I visited her mm -hmm. and that she is really struggling with whatever, you know, she was struggling with. And mm -hmm. it may be just a simple act of making eye contact with her at a particular point. Or it may be, you know, mm. changing the ending, not so much the ending of the story, but just changing certain things that will match something, you know. So there's a real relationship you have, at least for me, when I was preaching to a congregation that was mine. But with writing, you are trying to put something together where you don't know these people, but right. you want it to be as well done and as well crafted as possible to, you know, maybe create some bridges. Uh, that are there. The one similarity, and you know, when you when you ask that question, JW, is the thing that preaching taught me, uh, and, and especially as I was also not only preaching, but I was visiting folks in hospitals, and I was, you know, marrying them and baptizing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is everybody's a mess. Mm -hmm. Everybody, you know, you, you sometimes can look out, whether it's <laughs> at a church or in any gathering of folks, and you know, you can say, oh, look, that person must be really all together. They're nicely dressed or, you know, they interact with people so easily. And the thing you discover as a pastor is, boy, we all carry around so much pain. 
and mm-hmm. so many mm-hmm. doubts and and so much that that we are afraid to you know have revealed and um as i write i try to remember that i mean i try to remember that not only whatever characters i create but you know and i i write a certain amount of uh, fairly short nonfiction, uh creative nonfiction, you know to to still recognize that the people that I'm sharing about and the people who I hope might read these things, they are hurting, they're complex, uh, they, they are not who you think they are uh, to a certain extent. And so, you know, to try to capture that and, and you know, being in ministry and the both the preaching and then the reaction to the preaching or other parts of the life of the church you know, help me really understand that. Fascinating. Well, it is yeah. fascinating. It makes you think, you know, in that field where you get an inside look at people's lives, mm-hmm. you, you know, you really can use that in your writing, not to exploit people, but to have other people sympathize with those emotions. Because, you know, when you look at now the social media, what people present out there, mm-hmm. It makes so many people depressed or like exactly as you said, exactly as you said, um, that what we present sometimes is not what we're feeling inside. And sometimes it's the exact opposite because you're compensating for what's out there. So I love that you can incorporate that, weave that into your writing. And so I'd be very curious as to your, some your fiction works, um, for that being in there, because it's like the, the, you know, the psychiatrist and the hospital you know when you get those mm-hmm. insights when people are at their lowest yep mm-hmm. yeah yeah so surely that makes its way into your into your story somehow but then it's not part of your process that's how it just happens organically yes yeah 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 fascinating yeah i always cool. i mean i always uh, kept that world separate i mean one of the one of my weird habits is I typically get up around four in the morning, and the, oh, the first uh, three or so hours is kind of devoted to either writing or procrastinating about writing. <laughs> um, wow, that's a that's and, aggressive. Uh, four in the morning it, to procrastinate. <laughs> yeah, and so women when I was serving churches, I would you know uh, the, you know it's it's Melissa. It's like the little piece that you read uh, of mine. You know that sense of isolation. I mean, I yeah. Uh, very few people call you at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, right, that, that's right. for sure. But Thankfully. I but I had that yes. personal and private time. Uh, and then when that was over with, then I went into a very public world. But I also tell you, I in, in many places where I served churches, I I had a little place I could put a little mat on the floor and take a twenty minute nap in the afternoon or something. <laughs> um, and the thing with the most churches is you also have those evening meetings, you know, so yeah. yes. uh, the day would start Long early days. and often it, uh, it would be late into the night. So so I'm curious, was the um, ministry or the churches where you work, were they supportive of your writing? Was there any connection there? Or was that just something that was totally on your own time? Yeah, totally on my own, I think. Yeah, okay. I, think. I mean, certainly some people knew I was doing it, but... You know, I think was mostly perceived as separate. You know, and the nature of church, even you know, toss out preaching, and you still are doing a wide variety of things that are based on writing things. I mean, right. uh, you know, church newsletters, gotta love them. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I wrote plays, I wrote uh, various other things for churches, so people were certainly aware that I was interested uh, in writing. But I think for the majority of folks you know, who mostly were there on the pews on Sunday or 
were helping with the committees or the funerals or whatever it was. They just, you know, uh, there's Larry. He's the guy that is our pastor and right. he does his thing. And I guess he works an hour on Sunday. Um, <laughs> Oh, I hope that's not what people think. Oh, uh, oh some people yes. do. Amen, brother. <laughs> yes, no, there's. I, I, I. That that drove me crazy sometimes when uh, somebody would say, "You got it so easy, man." Yeah, yeah, and it's like the writing. It's the same thing. You prepare all. Exactly. Nobody sees exactly. all the preparations you yeah. went through. You can't just get up there and preach a sermon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's that is hysterical. Yep. Oh. Wow, why well, we are already getting close to time. That here, was so. super fast. I know. I, I well, we do ask like one question. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I am curious. I'll ask one, Melissa, then you go, and then we'll do our last one. Okay. So, do you consider yourself a discovery writer, or do you plot it all out? Because you've done mysteries, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I, it, it it has to be a combination of both. Although I think I do a certain amount of plotting it out because I do want to have at least key points where I'm flowing towards. And there certainly are times which, regardless of how well I have kind of set up the places that I want to get to, so there's that you know sudden discovery of something or mm -hmm. a person is revealed as something completely differently where um, I, I just take off in different directions just because that's where the characters wanted me to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and uh but i think i i would lean and i think most because i really do enjoy mysteries and most of the novels i have written are about mysteries uh you know and and so i i think there's an element of having to plot out certain things but when i read about other writers i am not as meticulous uh as as some folks uh, mm -hmm. uh that, that i have read about okay it's amazing how different people are in their writing styles one of my critique partners is, I mean, she blots out everything. Her lists are just beautiful spreadsheets, mm -hmm. charts. It, and I just, I get all excited. And I'm like, I can, no, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. I get started. I started sticky notes. And then they're sitting beside me. There's just a couple. I just yep. have to fly mostly by the seat of my pants. Yeah. yeah. Well, I know uh, one of the uh, a writer who I admire a lot, Annie Diller, who's probably best known book is Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. But she she puts out uh, incredible. In fact, it's it's multiple tables, and she puts out cards everywhere on the tables. And when she's <laughs> yeah. she's literally walking around the tables, adding things and, wow. and looking at things, and it just and then, builds. And, and part of her claim is, you know, when she's heard people die, my goal is writing, you know, a thousand words a day. Her her response to that was, I can barely make one sentence a day. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, so I mean, what you said, Melissa, is so true. Every single person is very different, you know, it in is. terms of how they approach it. Yeah. And then the mistake you make sometimes is, oh, I have to write like Stephen King, or I yes. have to write like David Balducci, or yep. you know, whatever it is. You know, tell you know, the, once I once I find out how they do it, that's how I'll do it. Yeah. And that's that's not going to work. No. Right. Right. It's not. I recorded a friend of mine and I recorded an, an Instagram reel. We, we've taken to doing tandem reels, um, which is a lot of fun. But we were talking about it, that, that exact same subject, about comparing yourself to other writers mm -hmm. and how dangerous that can be. And yes. one thing that she told me was that um, you are, if you try to be like somebody else, they will always be better at being themselves than you are. 
Yes. I mean, you're, you're never going to be as good as they are themselves. Uh, that's a right. good way to say it. Yeah. I love yeah. that. because yeah. And you're best at being yourself. Like your story that you tell who's inside, you're going to do it better than anybody else. And I love that. I think it's a yeah. great way to, to do it. Not There's not a one size fits all for writing. You have to do it your best. Yeah, yeah um, sure. The best way that you can. Does that bring us to our last question, JW? I guess so. Um, yeah, pretty much up on time. And, you know, our question related to that is kind of to share a piece of writing advice or information, resources, whatever you think that aspiring authors or curious listeners uh, would want to know about the writing process. I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, <laughs> if anyone so, listens to the show, they know too. <laughs> so oh, here have, it comes. I have prepared this sermon. Um, <laughs> no, the, the thing that immediately came to my mind was finish the first draft and then start doing the revising. Hmm. And I mean, I, I firmly believe that any good writer is actually truly a good rewriter, a good reviser. So that would be my advice. I mean, whatever it is from poem to, um, you know, short story to novel to creative nonfiction, um, get that first draft out and then you can start to do the work on it. That's pretty much in your piece talking yes. about that. And I like yeah. that. Um, it sticks out. So your recommendation is when you're, say you get some critique on the first five pages, don't go back and work on those first five, first five just keep going. Yeah, I mean, you may want to take some notes down, obviously, but right. just, just keep going. I completely agree with you. I think yeah. we can get bogged down and really, really halt your your progression. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I remember this a long, long time ago, and it was sort of paraphrasing something or other from what somebody said about writing, but it's like if partway through your first draft, one of your best characters is Uncle Harry, and then later on you realize Uncle Harry has to be a St. Bernard dog. <laughs> well, just change over to the dog and keep going. I and like then, it. Yeah. And then yeah. later on, you can change Uncle Harry earlier back into the St. Bernard, and it'll all be fine because yeah. nobody will ever know that uh, the St. Bernard dog was once your Uncle Harry. I like right, it. Right. But it would I... be great to know that because that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. All right. Well, Larry, thanks so much for submitting your story slash journey and it's uh, really a fun read it's i, I mean uh, the humor and it really comes through so and i appreciate humor in writing and especially yes. in such a challenging uh, endeavor like writing is it's kind of nice to put your story out there make it fun and educate people in the process so thanks yes. for submitting it we're happy to get it out to the world and thanks Thank for you. coming on the show yes yeah. thanks it's, so much it's, it's been a lot of fun it has thank you very much for listening we hope you enjoyed the show if so Please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyxpublications. 
As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.